This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, two stories about land and people in Palestine squeezing olive oil for markets around the world, promoting cultural and biological diversity, a future single state in mind. And on a completely different note, on the other side of the Mediterranean, some plants were born to play jazz. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Nothing has as much of an appetite for raw material than a weekly hour-long radio show. This week, this beast that needs feeding in mind, I'll be chatting with two experts on entirely different matters, the radical American right's stealth plan to destroy democracy and the hardest objects in the universe, neutron stars, two of which smashed into each other millions of years ago and the reverberations just been spotted. So, stuff that's been happening under our noses for years and is catching up with us, events billions of years ago that forged the world we live in today, the very air we breathe, continue to do so, and will one day put the whammy on us. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Screamin' Jay Hawkins, she put the whammy on me. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Canaan Fair Trade is the largest exporter of fair trade Palestinian olive oil, almonds, and related organic food products in the world. 
I visited Canaan Palestine's olive oil operation in Burkin, near Jenin, in the northern occupied West Bank. This is what we call, uh, where we think olive uh, industry started. This is where the Romans started growing olives thousands of years ago. And that's why we set up our operation here in Burkin. Uh, this is a, like a 10-year-old operation. We, um, we're going to take a tour right now. But we work with around 1,700 farmers, Palestinian farmers, uh, from all over the West Bank. Uh, we organize them in collectives. And we work through the collectives to provide services to the farmers, technical assistance, extension services, uh, supervision of their groves, uh, training, etc., etc., to kind of make sure that they provide high-quality product at the end of the year. And then we buy it from them on a premium price. That's where the fair trade part is. We process it here, and we sell it to the world. So that's our story in a, in a nutshell. And we're talking about not just olive oil. Uh, or uh, just olive oil, or are we talking about other, other fair No, we're, we're doing other products as well. We're doing other uh, pastes and tapenades. We're doing dry foods like um, tool and frike. Uh, and we just ventured into almonds. Almonds is also an ancient, you know, indigenous product, indigenous uh, variety, of, variety of species of Palestine. So we started with that. We're not processing almonds. We're selling it whole as is. To, uh, but we also uh, we have byproducts from almonds, where we have almond oil and almond meal. So we mill the oil out of the almonds. We sell it to cosmetic companies and uh, other ingredient uh, companies. Including Part Lush, I've just found including out. Including Lush and, Lush and, and, and others. Lush and others. And who? Lush UK and Lush Canada. Lush UK yeah. and Lush Canada. We have Ben and Jerry also using our almonds in their ice cream and you know, developing exist, uh, the supporting existing flavors and developing new ones. Um, and we have you know, sub, uh, distribution uh, partners all over the world for all of our products, not just like the oil, but also the almonds and other uh, products. I want to talk a little bit about the press and about the season, the harvest season. So this is an Italian press. It's the most fine, the most modern press in Palestine. It, you can expect the best quality. It presses on low water temperature. Why is, this is why it's called a cold press. Uh, to combine between the old agricultural methods and the modern agricultural methods is between the soil and this machine. This is how we combine. We actually encourage our farmers to keep their grandfather agricultural methods to help them uh, keep their, their methods that they learned from their ancestors and at the same time to refine this olive oil in this beautiful machine with the modern agricultural ways and to keep their product organic. They have been growing organic products since ever. This is why it was so uh, easy flow to implement organic production in Palestine. Um, by this, because farmers are already doing it, yes. they've been doing it for generations. Yes. Mm -hmm. we, 
we, we, we would love to say that our farmers are teaching us. They are giving us more information about the land every day. We are still learning every day from our farmers. We have found before a couple of years, uh, and, and what do we call it? The, the, back, the backyard of the, an ancient press, an yeah. ancient press an ancient just, behind, just behind the company. And they are storing olive oil the same way that we are storing olive oil here at Canaan. They're using the same methods. They know what's wrong, they know what's right. They are teaching us more than we are teaching them. We're helping them just with technical stuff in order to market their products. So give me an example. What have you, what have you learned? What's one of the yeah. most interesting things you've learned about yeah. olives? For example, the company here stores olive oil on, uh, uh, on a temperature between 16 to 18 degrees. And we uh, make sure that oxygen does not always come around olive oil. We replace oxygen into nitrogen. The uh, olive uh, press that we found, they were already uh, pressing the olive oil at the same moment and storing it away from heat under the ground, which under underground it's the same temperature between 16 to 18, mm -hmm. and they are saving it in big jars and filling it until the top and closing it to keep it away from oxygen. So we are just developing the ideas that they have. <laughs> As you can see, it's calm. No pressing now. It works in mid-October, November, December, and mid-January mainly. And this is when people cultivate and compress at the same day. They cultivate in the morning and compress at the same day to keep the quality of olive oil as long as possible. What's the precondition to kind of be able to get extra virgin olive oil? You have to press no later than 24 hours from picking the olives can't store it for more than 24 hours. So that's why we work with our farmers who are like in the vicinity of Canaan, but we also work with 30 presses distributed all over the West Bank, so farmers from villages could immediately go and press in their own village in the nearby press. So describe this, the, the setup for me. <laughs> it looks quite complex, yes. Yeah. What, what happens where? Yeah. This mainly presses for 12% of our farmers, of the 1,700 farmers. It presses for seven different farmers at the same time without mixing them. This is why we have six here, six, and there's another one, seven different malaxes. The process works this way. There is a big hole outside where it brings olives from outside to the inside. Farmers, small-scale farmers that we work with, has a, a, a between 60 to 100 denims. So they cultivate between 500 to 700 kg per day. When we say seven different farmers, we mean each malaxer has a capacity between 500 to 700 kg. We mean about three to three and a half tons. They bring their olives. It comes in through this small tube to the blower where it blows all the leaves and then to the washer in this uh, small sink. And then from here to an elevator to the disc crasher. This is something made uniquely for this machine. It has a disc and it has knives on it. It slices up the olive instead of crushing the olive. The two main factors that determine the quality of olive oil is heat and how much, how much is it exposed to, to heat and how much is it exposed to air. So whenever it gets into this, it doesn't crush the olive. It slices up the olive so 
it keeps the temperature low. And then from here to the malaxa where it gets pressed with, the, uh, with water, with low water temperature. So this press takes almost between 45, to one hour, 45 minutes to one hour to press. Other presses take about 20 to 25 minutes. It's all on the cost of quality. This is why this press takes longer than other presses. Then from here to the decounter, where it, where it separates uh, um, uh, solid from liquid. It separates the husk or the meat of the olive to uh, oil and water. And then to the filter where it separa separates uh, olive oil and water. From here, we have five different tanks, six different tanks for each different malaxer. We separate the olive oil for each farmer. We test it. We make sure if it's version or extra version because this small uh, difference between version and extra version can make a difference in paying the farmer. It makes a difference in bottling as we sell version only for cosmetics. We only bottle extra version olive oil. In order to make a competition between the farmers, uh, the only thing that defines extra version is how you cultivate. How long time do you keep it in, in exposed air or in exposed heat? So this, make, this means that how much the farmer took better care of his tree or of his land. He didn't step on the olives. He didn't cultivate by sticks. So these small uh, things make dif big difference. So uh, for example, last year, uh, virgin olive oil farmers uh, were paid 25 shekels, 25 and a half shekels per kilogram. Uh, extra virgin olive oil farmers were paid 27 shekel per kilogram. That shekel and a half, if you took better care of your land, you, you had extra virgin olive oil, you get paid better. This is how we make this fair competition between the farmers. Then from here, this olive oil, when it's tested and everything is fine, it goes into storage. We have a third test here at the company where we do a tasting test. Even if it was extra version and the tasting test didn't get in our standards, it goes into version olive oil. What's What's this? What's bottling line uh, this is the filtering area where we send or bump olive oil extra virgin olive oil from stores downstairs to upstairs we only bump olive oil when there is an order to keep the quality as much as possible as down we have a climate set it's between 16 to 18 degrees in summer and in winter in order to keep the viscosity of the olive oil and we bump olive oil into these tanks. These tanks are connected to the bottling line. This bottling line bottles almost 1,000 bottles in an hour. It bumps nitrogen to replace oxygen into nitrogen into bottles, and it does everything. Uh, pressure caps, caps and labels and everything, but the boxing is done by hand by the workers. How did you worry so much about olive oil? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I've been working here for the past two years, and I studied geography and political science. It's in the middle between what Kanaan is working all about. But still, I'm, I can't say uh, I've learned everything. I'm still learning. Day by day, uh, we still learn everything over but here. Like the whole oil and the whole olive industry is deeply rooted within Palestinian yes. culture. Yes. You know, we 
you know, start our lives with, you know, picking olives and yeah. We, yeah. we ended we eating oil. We have olive trees in our, in our garden. It's not the fact that only farmers have orchards. Mm-hmm. It's a culture to grow olive trees in our garden and in our houses. We it's, it's, it's really known that the whole olive industry started in the Middle East. So we would like to say that it started in Palestine. So you're carrying on a tradition. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the almond line. Uh, it's the first of its kind in the Middle East. The nearest one is in Turkey. Uh, it shells and bricks almost one ton in an hour. It does shelling, sorting, and grading. Basically, shelling, grading, and sorting. It grades uh, almonds into five different sizes. And then women sort by hand uh, all the broken ones, the scratched ones, in order to press them. We only press the scratched and the broken ones. The whole almonds we sell as whole almonds in raw material, in raw, as a raw product, for other companies to use it as an ingredient. Um, basically, we have a, 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 a one variety of almonds in Palestine called Hassan Asad. They're named after a farmer, Hassan Asad, who actually helped uh, make this uh, plant uh, indigenous basically because it's half wild half planted uh, so it uses less water and it has one of the biggest sizes almonds in the world uh, this is about 19 uh, 19 uh, almonds per, for one ounce California almonds are about 20, 23 yeah so it's much bigger it's more flat it has a gold color and it's perfect for roasting so and through the high demand in, in in the world for almonds it's a trend now almond milk and almond butter and people are getting to know more about almonds there's a c- comparison between olive trees and almond trees in palestine uh, a farmer would like to grow an olive tree because it stays more it has a long life it can stay for thousands of years we have olive trees in palestine we have the oldest tree on earth it's an olive tree. It's in did you in Walaji, yeah. yeah. We have some olive trees over here that are, that are about between 500 to 1,000 years. It's been here since the Romans. Almond trees are about 15 years old. They start to give after two to three years, and then after 15 years, they don't give anymore. So these farmers are thinking more about uh, what if I. St- the, the, the almond tree stopped giving and what if I don't have to, money to plant anymore now they know that this added value of organic and fair trade beside that almond is already quadruple the price of olive oil but still at the same time this edge of added value will give them even more profit to their product they know that they want to grow almonds now and they want to diversify as well yeah. they want to diversify their investment so it's not just olives it's almonds and other products as well and we are working with farmers to introduce even newer products yeah. like what we use with maftool and frike and which is really basically booming in the u.s yeah. this is the byproduct of the almond when we press it this is the de-oiled almonds we grind it and it goes into almond meal Almond meal, we use it as a substitute for wheat. 
for people who want free gluten, who has high health awareness. Gluten free. Gluten free. That is yeah. gluten free. Yeah. And it's high in protein and other vitamins as well, vitamin E and vitamin and potassium and, and zinc. It's really high, very highly nutritious. Ghassan Al-Jamal is in charge of business development, and Namif is a marketing assistant at Canaan Palestine. For more information about Canaan Fair Trade and its products, go to greenplantmonitor.net. Johnson, there, Red Hot, recorded in San Antonio, Texas, on November 27, 1936. South of Canaan, Palestine's oil and almond processing facility, on a Bethlehem hillside, another Palestinian initiative is consolidating ties between land and people. The Palestine Museum of Natural History 
I spoke with the museum's director, Mazen Kumsier, and got taken on a tour of its beautiful grounds by volunteer coordinator Jesse Chang. Uh, we will see the exhibit a little later. Now I'm going to feed our animal and go to the aquaponic. <laughs> oh, hi, my, my name's Jesse. <laughs> I volunteer at the Palestine Museum of Natural History. Every day we have to take care of the animals that have here for, for the time being. Uh, for now, we have a peacock and a lot of uh, tortoises. Of course, outdoor. Oh, there is a hot wood. I don't know if you see the shadow. Just by the edge of the shadow of the tree. I think it's a hood hoopoe. I wish I could have some. Uh, it's a bird. Binocular, yeah, the bird. This is a beautiful location, Jesse. For mm -hmm. those people, this is radio, so people can't see where we are, but can you describe this location? Uh, yeah, this is the Marandria site of the Bethlehem area. And in the middle of the urban area, and it's uh, near the uh, Jabba Abu Ghanim, now it's a settlement of Harhoma. So you can see... One of these illegal uh, Jewish yeah. settlements. Yeah. So unfortunately we can see oh. see them from everywhere. It's a magnificent peacock. Here's a peacock. His name is Romeo. And we found out there's some other peacock in town, in Beitsahu, actually the zoo, you know. So we might get some, oh, those are the, one of the, one of several tortoises. The peacock is kind of trailing the tortoise. <laughs> no, they were just moving around because now we are inside the, their territory, so I think they're a little uh, nervous. So I have here watermelon peel and orange peel and banana peel. Of course, those tortoises will like this. And, and I also have some uh, mulberry and, and loquats. So all those is, you know, from the trees on the site here, garden. So if we cannot consume, no, of course we love the loquats and the mulberry. If there's ex, you know, there's plenty of extras, so we can't even uh, consume all of them. The rest will go to our beloved animals here. The so tortoise. in this enclosure, you've got uh, you've got this peacock okay. and you've got tortoises. Yeah, it goes. It, it has different creatures over time period. Yeah, if you don't, if you remember in the video, we we had a owl, it was an owl and an eagle owl. And then there's a duck, and then there are um, um, chickens. There were a uh, for a short time a caravan. Caravan is a bird, long-legged bird, runs really fast like road runner. And then we have a uh, cattle egret, and and then we have a fox. You know, most of those are being rehabilitated, and some made it and be freed, and some didn't make it. 
uh, now uh, we were donated to uh, uh, this Romeo, this peacock. And tortoises, some were found on the garden. We also have a, f uh, a family that brought three or four of their tortoises here. They want a good family to take care of those tortoises because they, their children had grown up, uh, moved away, and they, they just cannot take care of those tortoises. So, so they found this place, and they like the place, and uh, it's being taken care of every day. So, uh, so mixture of sources of all the tortoises. And we found uh, several tortoise eggs last winter. And then they all hatched. So sometimes we have to be careful walking in this area because they were like a, 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 you know, a quarter, American quarter size, <laughs> small. Of course, they are growing a little bit bigger. And I'm going to put some more water. So, Mazen Kumseya, I'm professor at Bethlehem and Birzeit Universities. And uh, previously I worked in universities like Duke and Yale Universities in the U.S. Uh, and University of Tennessee, I was a professor in medical schools. My background is in biology, biodiversity, and medical genetics. I switched uh, areas because I am interested in many things in my life. Where are we right now? So this is the part of Bethlehem University. It's a campus that's uh, uh, near Bethlehem University. It's uh, called Mar Andrea Campus. And on this campus, uh, we established as a new project uh, a Palestine Institute of Biodiversity and Sustainability and uh, a Museum of Natural History, a Botanical Garden, Agricultural Research Center. Nature and human society both reject attempts at monolithic societies, monolithic cultures, monolithic nature. In nature, biodiversity, why do we say biodiversity is important? The, a healthy ecosystem is an ecosystem that has many uh, species, few individuals from many species. An unhealthy ecosystem is an ecosystem that is dominated by one species, right? And that's an unstable ecosystem that's not healthy, even for the dominant species. Eventually, this dominant species will crash. Uh, so the same in human societies. A diverse society, which includes people of various religions, various cultures, various backgrounds, the stronger, stronger physically, more able to sustain itself than a society that's in which one religion or one ideology tries to dominate, or one skin color in the case of South African apartheid. The Nazis failed because they were looking for a society that's German, Aryan-speaking, white people. And logic says that such a society that's dominated by one species does not survive, or by one ideology, or by one religion. Concretely, your work here, how does My that... work is to accelerate the day in which humans can live sustainably in a diverse, this is an important word, in a diverse 
social ecosystem and a diverse natural ecosystem. Accelerate that day that's coming. And protect the ecosystems that exist. Where there's ecosystems that are diverse, like nature preserves, we need to protect them, right? Where there's diverse social ecosystems, we need to protect them. For example, collaboration between Palestinians and Israelis in resisting an apartheid racist regime, we need to protect it and nurture it. We need to protect that ecosystem of coexistence, intermarriage, for example, all of this, we need to encourage it. You see, that's where the integration comes. That's where it's not separate. I cannot talk about nature if I don't talk about society because we are part of nature. Humans are part of nature. How can you separate human society from nature? Just give any random example. I'll give you an example. The wall that Israel is building. That's not just a social phenomenon. It's an environmental justice phenomenon. It's a, it's a human rights justice phenomenon. It's a religious phenomenon because Palestinians are prevented from going to, uh, to pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque. I, as a Palestinian a Christian, I'm not allowed to go to the Church of the Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Even though I have an American passport, I'm not allowed to go there. And it's ugly, it's ugly environmentally. It's, it's, it's a defacement it's, it's of the land. As these settlements are, you look at the settlements, right. and it's an it's, incredible act of kind of vandalism on a so, large scale. So it's destructive on very many aspects, okay? And uh, you cannot isolate this aspect. You cannot say, well, I want to address just this one aspect. You cannot do that have to address the aspects in a holistic picture. The new philosophy of ecosystem restoration of damaged ecosystems, you have to think holistically of all the species that exist and the network that exists between them. All of this ecocide, if you want, uh, you can call it genocide or politicized, destruction or of ecocide. Destruction of a million olive trees. It's a destruction of a community. The destruction of this community you cannot take one part of it and say, this is the part that I want to focus on. You have to look at the whole picture. Yeah, this is a biodiversity center, you know, the Palestine Institute of Biodiversity and Sustainability. So we try to live the way, um, the respect the biodiversity, respect the environment, and uh, looking for ways that we can live sustainably. Since we uh, have this site to develop the museum project, it's been two, two years, two olive harvesting years. So we have harvested two, two years, the uh, olives. And uh, the second year was better harvest than this first year. You know, before we started here, there was no, uh, uh, the grounds were not ta well taken care of. Um, so the trees are, you know, some of the trees are not very happy. Uh, once we moved here, we have a constant care of all the trees, trimming the trees. You know, uh, I think have some human interaction with the trees that also encourage the trees to be held happier. This olive tree number 42. <laughs> 
tree number 42. And we have total 85 olive trees, but some are really ancient, like the, this one or even other bigger ancient ones, several the other daily tasks and special tasks. Where are we going, Jesse? Uh, our greenhouse where the aquaponic systems are. Outside the greenhouse, you see the interpretive signs that tell you what, what's aquaponic. And it smells, it's humid and fragrant. I smell basil. What, yeah, what do you see? What do I see? Well, yeah. I see beautiful basil and I smell it. This is lots of basil. What else? <laughs> oh, you're, you're testing me. These are tomatoes? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, those yeah. are tomatoes. Yeah. Those are obviously tomatoes. Yeah, those are tomatoes. And those, these are uh, Chinese eggplants. Chinese eggplant. Those. This, this, I haven't figured out what it is. Here. This is a surprise. I thought it's going to be those Palestinian huge, big, fat eggplants, but turn out to be a thin, long, Chinese kind. And where did you get so, the seeds for this? You know, I do not know. <laughs> I, I, somebody else's... Uh, Got the seedlings or I or the seeds growing from seeds or seedlings. I can't remember. I don't remember because um, a lot of volunteers helping us with this. Of course, you see it needs weeding uh, regularly. Uh, we have how many eggplant? I think plants uh, like a, a dozen eggplant plants. And here is a, about, you know, I think it's like more than two dozens of tomato plants. Uh, we have lots of harvest today. If we can pick up those red ones, there are so many. And we'll weigh them. And I'm sure you have time to share this fresh tomato with us for lunch. Think globally and act locally, right? Schumacher. Okay, so that's basically what we do. We think globally because globally is where it is now. We don't have to think globally if we had lived here 500 years ago. But now we must think globally because, as I said, the alternative is extinction of a species, of our species, and the destruction of this beautiful planet, this beautiful blue planet called Earth. We cannot afford this anymore. So you're acting okay? locally. So, so acting locally is acting locally. What is acting locally? Acting locally, using my own skill, my own background, which is what? Biology, biodiversity, sustainable agriculture, genetics, to try and understand things and try and act by producing something. Produce something, light a candle. As Again, you know, I'm humble enough. Now. I don't have to reinvent how people act locally. I mean, like the Chinese saying, light a candle better than cursing the darkness. So you light a candle. Now, whether this candle will be blown over, Israel could come any day here and bomb this center. The next conflict here with the Palestinians could say, well, it was an errant missile and bomb it. So, but, but at least you tried. Your candle may have been blown, but at least you tried. There was a guy who came among some adults here, and he saw the museum, and he then took me aside. He says, Dr. Mazen, I have to tell you, 
what did you do to my daughter? I said, what? He said, what did you do to my daughter? She came to the museum and she came back changed. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, she's lecturing us about pollution. She doesn't want me to smoke. She picks up the garbage. She uh, wants recycled. She wants the kitchen waste composted and all this stuff. And I said, so are you unhappy about this? He said, no, no, no. I just <laughs> wanted to thank you for this transformation. To me, that was worth a thousand certificates and a million dollars. Uh, one person at a time. One person at a time. You can come back here. Okay, I'll okay. show you. Um, three systems. Uh, each system has a, a huge uh, fish tank and then a, a small uh, lower sump tank. And then two growing beds with a filled with lava rocks, um, growing uh, various kinds of vegetables. So the water circulating between the fish tank and the plants and the sump pump, and then the growing lava bed, and back to the fish tank. You know, the water circulating between the fish tank and the uh, vegetable growing bed, and fish waste produce uh, nutrients and then goes to feed the plants and the plants and the rooting system and the lava rock uh, produce uh, ingredients that is beneficial for the fish and of course we feed right now we feed the fish with the commercial fish food so this is permaculture this is, what's is it, yeah is one yeah it, it's the one uh, facet of permaculture, you know, and try to see, uh, we use the waters uh, in the limited water supply situation, also limited uh, land space situation, would this system be sustainable? And so this could be scaled up to produce food, fish food and plant food for a family or for a community? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. And now we have different things that we are growing. Of course, we. What are you growing here? We have lettuce, uh, romaine lettuce, and basil, and coriander, and uh, hot pepper. Small hot peppers on this side, and there here is uh, some squash, t uh, tomato plants and more basil, the purple basil and green basil and coriander of course is Chinese food uh, ingredients or Indian food uh, many countries, many cuisines takes uh, coriander so it's one of my favorites that's my favorite too <laughs> you want to try it? <laughs> With a little, oh. it needs to be that's wonderful eaten here. I love it. They're growing so much. Okay, the food feeding. You're gonna feed the fish. Yeah, I'm gonna feed the fish. 
kind of darks in the water so you might not see it but but they will come and get the food whoa Oh, fish are jumping. Mazen Kumsier is director of the Palestine Museum of Natural History. Jesse Chang is volunteer coordinator. When I found a hill about 12 o'clock, reached right back and got me a pole. Went to the hard one, got me a hook. Fished that line right on that hook. Says you've been fishing all the time. I'm a going to fish Thomas, recorded in Chicago in June 1928. You're listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Sometimes the fruit of the land is music to our ears or helps generate it. Across the Mediterranean from Palestine in the south of France, cane reeds provide this service. the seductive voice of a clarinet, the wild wail of a tenor sax, the whimsical tones of a bassoon or oboe. Each of these musical sounds is produced by blowing air over a thinly shaved reed sliced from a cane stalk 
The reed in this oboe could have been made from cane grown in the Var region of southern France between Saint-Tropez and Toulon. An American artist wants to come today to visit our factory and wants, he wants to buy some, some canes. Bassoon and oboe. I will tell him to come this afternoon. Thomas Donati is the third generation of cane producers here in the VAR. Back in 1932, Thomas's grandfather turned cane into flower baskets. One fateful day in 1940, an American showed up in search of reeds for his clarinet. The Donatis have specialized in music reeds ever since. For years, they delivered their cane to reed producer Steuer in Germany, the Donatis purchased Steuer in 1994, moving the factory to the village of Carcaran. Okay. Thomas Donati uh, takes me on a tour of a plantation outside the village of Pierrefeu, where cane grows sky high, raw material for lots and lots of music reeds. Sometimes it's, it's like a deep forest. Giant cane, Arundo donax grows all around the Mediterranean as well as in Argentina, Australia, and South Africa. In the southern U.S., it's considered an invasive species. Here in the VAR, giant cane is perfectly suited for clarinet and sax reeds. This, this is a one-year cane. Okay, the cane is, is green and soft. And this is a two-year cane. The cane is hard. You have some yellow, uh, yellowish color. Cane stalks are harvested in their second year once photosynthetic pigments have faded away and hard lignins have accumulated. Thomas points out a perfect specimen. Here you have a cane of saxophone, tenor sax. Then you have some tubes for alt sax. And if you go up, maybe you will find some clarinet tubes. You can potentially find tubes for any woodwind in one cane. Baritone, tenor, alto sax, soprano, clarinet, bassoon, and potentially oboe. But oboe, we use a cane from a different place. What makes France's Var region such a special place to grow cane reeds? It's famous east wind. We have uh, Le Mistral, which is a strong wind that um, give it Muscles, strength and uh, flexibility. Clay-rich soil and high humidity generate cane of all sizes. Skinny ones for oboes and bassoons, thicker ones for clarinets and saxes. This cane is grown organically. At Steyr, we, we were one of the first not to use pesticides. You know, because the reed got in the mouth of a musician. So... The, the cane has to be cultivated 100% organically. Fifteen kilometers south of Pierrefeu, in a little factory in the village of Carcaran, giant cane stalks are sliced into six-inch tubes. Tubes are carefully measured, then sent off in bags for machining into clarinet, sax, and woodwind reeds. So here you have the, the bassoon cane, 28 to 30 millimeter. It's a big bassoon, a smaller bassoon. Here we have saxophone, 
also. And here you have the tenor sax. These are for tenor saxophones. Tenor saxophone. And you have even bigger, the baritone sax. Well, those are big. Very rare. Thomas takes me into the workshop where reeds are manufactured. Salut, Marc. Marc Charpentier is Steuer's master reed craftsman. I, I, I make the, the, the model for make the reed. You know, this model is the name is a patron. It's the same it's the same name from the patron from the dress. You know, I make that uh, I make that in in a steel. I can show you if you want. Manufacturing music reeds is a painstaking process. A steel mold must first be machined to fine precision. Prototype reeds produced from this are tested under extreme playing conditions. The mold complete, cane tubes are then split into four pieces, which are then sawed to length, flattened, sliced conically, and beveled on their ends. Thinness is key, says Charpentier. The ultimate aim, reeds that are easy to play and sound great. Out the other end comes a, an alto sax reed. In the end, it's clarinetist Thierry Maison's job to find out how easy reeds are to play and how nice they sound. In a soundproof room surrounded by clarinets and saxophones and dozens of boxes of reeds, Maison slips one reed after another into the mouthpiece of his clarinet. These reeds have come a long way from the windswept cane fields where they were born. They'll be making music for many years to come. I'm David Kattenberg. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM. University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg and at ckuw.net. Subscribe to our podcast at greenplanetmonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye.